This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Uh, I'd like to welcome Professor Jan Thomas, Vice-Chancellor at uh, Massey University. Uh, She's an experienced Vice-Chancellor and last year she had her term extended for another five years, was it, or was it three? Another Uh, five years. Prior to that, uh, Jan was Vice-Chancellor at University of Southern Queensland and before that she had um, a number of Deputy Vice-Chancellor roles. Her initial training was as a vet and I imagine um, that puts you in good stead sometimes in the, in the universities you've been uh, you've been working in. So, Jan, thank you for talking to me today about uh, reimagining higher education. So, what's the um, uh, object that represents your journey as a leader and your approach to leadership and and being an educator? It's a really interesting question that you've posed, um, Judith, and I um, have dilemmaed on what that might be actually. And having an object is was hard, right? So, but anyway, I've ended up coming up with um, this, which is a pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, also, and I don't know how rated you are, but it was given to me by a colleague, a colleague that you know well. Um, and on the side of it, it's got getting shit done. Um, <laughs> And it just struck me as being very grounded and practical and also really trying to make a difference and also the power of the pen, right? The words, the, the, way, the way we communicate with each other, our writing as academics, the importance of education and how that has been such a, yeah, a really compelling thing. So it was a combination of education and the written word and then secondly a sort of practical grounded wanting to make a difference um, seeing universities as a place that can transform transform lives transform nations so my pen uh, which was uh, gifted to me by a colleague um, represents some of the things that I hold quite um, you know as characteristic of my journey. And when you think of the number of times that you sign documents that have significant impact on the lives of of the institution of the life of the the sort of the politics of a community the pen is very powerful for you as a as a senior leader yeah yeah it is i mean and although we don't use pens so much anymore um it's really the the sort of metaphor for you know i'm putting my stamp um on this i'm you know endorsing this strategy i'm taking this forward um and in roles such as vice chancellor roles, you know, you do have an enormous, um, enormous opportunity to do good, and you've got an enormous opportunity to do bad as well. So each time you sign off on something, it matters. In preparation for our conversation today, uh, one of the comments that I read about you was your transformation from being a vet um, to moving into the academy. And it was part of your belief that the power of education to transform lives is actually what drives you. Is that, am I reading the right uh, intent into that? And can you unpack it a bit for me? 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, from the time I was kind of conscious, I wanted to be a vet. And um, I had no plan B, none whatsoever. Um, and so I, I was lucky enough to do veterinary science and have never regretted that, not for a minute. It's a, the most fabulous way of seeing and knowing the world and a fabulous body of knowledge to have. I think, um, you know, when I began working as a professional staff member training as a uh, veterinary pathologist at uh, Murdoch University in Western Australia, I started to see the broader impact of universities. And it wasn't until then that I imagined I'd ever go into education or that I'd ever become an academic. Actually, I was wanting to be a specialist veterinarian. But it became a very compelling narrative for me. And through that period of my life, uh, it became clear I worked certainly on things like veterinary curriculum and um, my teaching and research in veterinary science. But um, the veterinary program in and of itself was located within a much bigger context of, um, you know, funding and policy and process. And I became um, quite drawn to the notion of uh, student-centred universities and what that meant for individual students. And so moved up um, through into um, the sort of senior roles because I felt that there needed to be a shift in the way we managed students and their learning experiences, and especially those students who come from diverse backgrounds. And so the sort of golden thread of um, social justice, social inclusion, um, making sure that those who've not necessarily got sort of like almost the inherited right to go to universities were able to be their full, their best person. And so what does that mean for educators to move into communities that don't have an experience of uh, education, successful higher education? What does it mean for those individuals, their families, the generations that follow? And I really essentially kind of fell in love with the power of a university um, in terms of its capacity to build a nation. And so I wrestled with veterinary science and leaving veterinary science um, a lot because I loved it. So there was no push factor from veterinary science. It was all pull into a university um, at the highest level. And the sort of rest is history. So I, I was lucky enough to get a job as the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at Massey at, oops, wrong university, Murdoch University. All these M names. Oh, I know, right, and MU, right? So um, it's in uh, back in 2000 and late 2002, so a long time ago. And, um, you know, I've loved every moment of it. It's not that I, I do miss the veterinary science element of it, but I've been lucky enough to really fall on my feet and get, you know, some of the best jobs in the world. Was your undergraduate and your postgraduate experience like because you you actually left to do a master's degree in Melbourne but you did your undergraduate at Murdoch and your PhD at, uh, at Murdoch as well so yeah, tell yeah. us about that um well I, I was a very um kind of practical student uh, not not that smart and um so I, I struggled in my earlier years um I was young I was uh, I entered university younger than my cohort and um I don't think I was particularly mature, but also wasn't that smart. So I just kind of limped along, really. And, you know, a very average student that people would forget. Um, as I got further into the sort of clinical years, I got a lot better at it because it was very practical and hands-on as a veterinary um, uh, studies student. 
So I was never a great student, um, but um, I wanted to be a vet. And so that was, you know, the faces pressing up against the wall when you're dealing with veterinary students is very real. You know, like people just want to do veterinary science. It's very vocationally driven. And I was typical for that. I went to Melbourne University because I wanted to specialise as a pathologist. And so that included a master's uh, program there. And that was um, a terrific couple of years. I enjoyed uh, Melbourne very much. And then I was um, uh, offered a job back at um, at Murdoch to do um, to work in the um, uh, postmortem area, doing diagnostic pathology and taking senior students through on rotation. And it was through that period that I um, was then, you know, um, started to think, oh, maybe I should do a PhD um, and um, move into the. So I didn't go back to Murdoch to do a PhD. It was I worked as a diagnostic pathologist and then took on a PhD part-time. Um, and uh, some of my um, advisors at the time said, you know, if you want to stay in universities, you do need a PhD. Um, and so uh, it just seemed like the thing to do rather than being very passionate about being a PhD, you know, going back and doing a PhD. It wasn't in my mind at all. But um, it was ended up being um, a good experience too. And I worked um, on a, uh, my PhD was on feline immunodeficiency virus, which at the time in the 90s was being used as an animal model for HIV in humans. So there was an enormous um, explosion of knowledge around HIV research in the 90s. And it was a very exciting, thrilling um, uh, work to be engaged with with the medicos and everybody else trying to resolve some of the challenges of HIV and I was investigating the natural circumstances of a similar virus in cats um, to understand the comparative differences between cats and humans and so on so cats cats are affected by a similar virus so that was the basis of my PhD and um, so I you know became um, you know, PhD by um, almost accident, but it was an exciting period of time. But it was always teaching, teaching development, staff development, curriculum development, learning environments, stuff that really excited me. And while I did do some PhD supervision and so on, it was most definitely the teaching elements that made me very passionate about what universities can do. So in terms of your early research, it, it's it really was interdisciplinary and you had you're working in teams interdisciplinary teams yes it's interesting that that's now come back to be first and foremost in terms of how universities are organized so from yeah. what in the sort of the early stages and, and, and now it just seems like common sense <laughs> but but back then it was sort of new and unique and and sort of high risk because you know you've got these two uh, high status professions and, and scholars working together, can they actually talk the same language? So can you just explain your approach to disciplinary teach, interdisciplinary teaching and how you see it as the way forward for re-managing the university? Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, disciplines are human constructs and um, where you draw the line depends on, you know, where you stand often, what constitutes a discipline. And, you know, I'm old enough um, to have seen disciplines emerge and you hear about, you know, disciplines like um, environmental science, say, way back in the 70s, not being a discipline. And now it's hard to imagine 
it not being a discipline. So mm -hmm. they do emerge as disciplines form and um, and so on. And I think that's one of the joys and wonders of the research um, community and endeavour in that knowledge is always expanding out and out and out and starting to bridge. I think it's very short-sighted not to stand outside your space and to look into your space. And that comes from mixing with people who have different perspectives. It's the same with anything in life, isn't it? Um, and so it's in, in my experience um, as a junior researcher in those days, you know, I would feel like I had some capability in my area, but then someone would come with, you know, an immunologist, human immunologist or whatever with a completely different perspective and you would, you can't unlearn that stuff. So it just expands the knowledge out and out and out. And uh, so, you know, that, that sense of um, mixing with difference to ensure that the product is just that much richer is, I think, part of the academic world. And I, even though people don't haven't necessarily used the term interdisciplinarity, I think it's in our natural tendency to be interdisciplinary because mm -hmm. we're curious. We, we are, well, yes, we are curious, but sometimes our education removes that curiosity. <laughs> so how do you how do you actually um, instill that curiosity into learning and and what's the role of the university to foster curiosity well what an interesting question that is and um, I think um, the last couple of decades have done quite a lot to kind of squash curiosity in undergraduates um, and it may be that we need to um, resurface um, the notion of curiosity in undergraduates. I mean, there's no doubt massification, moving online, um, didactic teaching, um, you know, poorly designed assessment that requires kind of regurgitation, those sorts of things squash um, curiosity. And the other thing that curiosity needs is time. And um, if you are time poor because you have part-time job, caring responsibilities, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You you can barely give yourself time to be curious. Um, you just get what you need to get done. The strategic student, mm -hmm. but curiosity I think is natural within children, and as time goes on, I think it it's for us as adults generally, and not just at universities, but to encourage that curiosity rather than. Um, dampen it uh, by instilling conformity amongst children. Really hard to do. By the time, um, I, my, my experience is that curiosity often rebuilds again when time becomes a little bit more um, on your side. So say for someone in their 40s coming back to study, um, they may be doing it for their personal satisfaction or to improve their career, and they are genuinely curious about a topic and want to follow things through. And um, they they then rediscover their curiosity and where that might might take them. But there's periods of time where you know people just want to be a strategic learner and get the assessment done. And I, we've all been there. As long as you know that you can actually move into a curiosity space when you need to. That's probably the thing that we need to make sure we, we we try and maintain if we can. So it sounds as though you're a great pro proponent of lifelong learning. Oh, totally. I'm studying myself, um, you know, and I'm an old girl. So, um, 
uh, you know, you can, I mean, sure, you know, I, I have all the sort of mature age angsts about, oh my God, I'm going to fail um, all the time. Um, and, uh, but I, I love learning myself. So personal, I mean, I don't need it for career advancement, um, but um, I do it for the, just the expansion of my horizons, opening up doors that weren't open before. Um, so yeah, I, I think everybody continues to learn the moment you stop learning, you might as well give up, but um, formal study um, certainly keeps you on track and enables you to mix with other people who are also studying, um, who might challenge you in other ways and other and, and academics and my experience of academics now as a mature age learner has been absolutely marvelous. So, you know, it, it, for me, uh, I think that curiosity, that passion for lifelong learning has um, been, has grown in within me and I'm definitely a proponent of it for other people. And you just look at the way work is changing, the nature of work, the jobs we have, uh, the many jobs we will have, many careers and professions we might have, they all require changing um, and upskilling. So yes, I absolutely am. I can't imagine having a single undergraduate degree lasting your lifetime. I, I actually can't imagine that. So Jan, you've tantalized me. What are you studying? <laughs> well, um, I'm uh, enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts um, by um, uh, online and uh, here at Massey and I'm majoring in uh, Maori knowledge and um, uh, te reo Maori. So um, so I'm doing a lot of language study, but also just the whole the whole knowledge base of um, the Maori world and the Maori world view on things. So uh, I have um, done that uh, ever since I came to New Zealand as part of my um, getting to know my new country. Um, it, it was important for me, um, and now I'm just continuing. So this this year, just is, and this is obviously. A shared um, therapy session for me now. I'm doing a um, course in creative writing in Te Reo Māori, and so mm -hmm. over the weekend I was like writing poems, and it's like, okay, this is this is not veterinary science, you know. So I I enjoy uh, testing myself, and I have high expectations on myself, which is unfortunate, but you know it's the nature of the beast. So what insights then have you? gained from your own study as, as a mature age student mm -hmm. that have become important to you as a senior leader in a university where learning and teaching is part of the core business? Yeah. Um, I think it's the ins one of the major insights for me is um, the, well, I'm not sure it's an insight, but it's really confirmed um, just how different each and every one of our students is, that you cannot make, um, you know, judgments on them, their ability, their ability to for time commitments, their motivation, their family of origin, the things that might make them uncomfortable in a learning situation, that really we're dealing with many individuals um, and finding ways to ensure that all of those people both feel safe and supported, but also um, encouraged to push their boundaries and challenge themselves is um, uh, something that has been brought home to me over the years here. An example of that, I think, is um, in the early days, I was studying at an institution here called, um, which are Tuaninga 
which are uh, like uh, Māori-based um, learning institutions like universities, Tuaranga or Aotearoa. And I'd be doing, doing um, I had, you know, two evenings a week night classes. And so many of the people in the night class were Māori and they were trying to um, recapture language that they've lost. And many of them had lost it because of very, very difficult social circumstances. And in fact, you know, having been, you know, shamed and smacked at school to, for speaking to our Māori. And then them feeling completely Māori in their identity, but not having the language, they again found that quite, um, well, shameful or embarrassing or a very uncomfortable um, feeling that they were disconnected from their language and that they couldn't stand up and speak their language, even though they felt very Māori. And so for those individuals, you know, that there, there were quite regularly tears um, in class. And we talk a lot about that. And so unless you kind of understand some of the backgrounds that people come with, some of their shadow sides, some of their family of origin stuff, it's actually very hard to um, be both welcoming, welcoming, enabling, supportive and encouraging in that situation. So just a small example, but the diversity of students and what makes them tick was, is very much brought home to me as I study. And then how do we as an institution that's funded on the basis of uh, one size fits all, then manage that to get the best out of every single one of our students is uh, some of the things that exercise my mind. So we started off and I made, made the mention of something that I'd read about you about your acknowledging the transform transformative nature of education. You've reinforced it then through your own learning. Mm. but. Can you unpack that about where, where that comes from and then the form it takes in terms of uh, the institutions that you lead? So um, I love graduations and um, they are the highlight of the academic calendar. And every single one of those students across the stage has their own story. It's brought home here when we have celebrations that where students are allowed to, you know, get up and speak, which doesn't happen that often in Australia, but does happen here. And many of them talk about their upbringing and the people that have supported them around them, how they've got to where they've got to. And the stories are emotionally compelling. Um, and they talk about students, now graduates, who've overcome so much to get to where, where they are. I think about a graduate who graduated in um, uh, social work. He was an older man and he had been a um, security guard standing outside one of the welfare agencies. And he saw so many families coming through that um, were in, you know, absolute, uh, um, the biggest problems possible for those individual families, very, very disrupted and the children. And he decided that he could do better than that. And so on the back of no education as an older man, he went back and studied and then ended up graduating in social work and becoming a social worker. You kind of go, that is, um, what can I do to help you with the courage that you've shown to stand up and be counted? How can I help you deliver on the courage, the courageous stance you've taken? Another, another woman that spoke just recently, uh, she uh, graduated as a nurse, I think, um, and she uh, said her turning point was when she was homeless and in a car with her two-year-old son, 
And she looked at him in the eyes and said, I promise I will make your life better than it is at this moment in time. And so she went back and studied, ultimately graduated and is doing well. And, and, and so for me, those individual stories of people and what the courage that they've had, um, so different to my own. Um, and yet um, I'm now in a position where I can do everything I can to support them. So we have, for example, at Massey, you know, quite a lot of um, work and resources underway to support the diversity of students that we have to make sure they're culturally um, sort of spiritually, socially, academically um, supported and safe um, and that they feel um, that they are able to achieve their very best at, at Massey and, and that's, that's no mistake that we do that quite deliberately. We do believe in balancing equity and excellence and um, we have a lot of data analytics that you, we use to support and anticipate um, students who may need may need us at the moment. Obviously, we've been very badly affected by Cyclone Gabriel. And because the majority of our students are online, we know there are students who are at the moment displaced with no power, no water, et cetera, et cetera. What can we do to support them directly right now? And we think about that all the time. So um, this is not just a university where we open our doors and say, if you want to come to us, great, come to us, we'll accept you. Um, and then forget about you. Uh, we work really hard with family and with those individuals to make sure that all those other things, the life that happens uh, is as smooth and supported so that they can be the best they can be because it's so often it is those other things, nothing to do with intellect or capacity or motivation. It's those other things that happen. So. Moving on to the, the sector, and you, you would have quite a lot of, um, you, you would be watching what's happening in Australia and li living what's happening in New Zealand. Mm. What, what are the challenges in higher education in the short and midterm, do you think? Around the world? Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, I think some of the stuff that I find really interesting is the um, the how people perceive the value of higher education. Um, and if you look at um, the global north um, versus the global south, you'll see very clearly that the numbers of students uh, who are seeking higher education in the global north hasn't changed in years, whereas it's rising exponentially in the global south. And um, in the global north and in countries like Australia, New Zealand, the US and so on, starting to see more and more people dismissing the value of a university education or questioning its value um, and indeed starting to promulgate um, a positive, um, you know, aggression towards expertise um, and um, embracing of misinformation. And so um, that is a huge shift in my time as Vice-Chancellor, where it was pretty much accepted that universities were a good thing for countries to have. Now, I think um, the sort of anti-intellectualism that I'm seeing uh, suggests that there are a growing proportion of people around the world who don't necessarily value universities, and that's a space that universities have never really had. And then in the developing countries in the global south, we're seeing the thirst for university education ever growing and people 
doing three jobs to pay for their child to go to university because they, they see it as a, a route out of poverty. So that's, I think, a huge thing for us to deal with. And at the, the sort of additional element of that around the misinformation, how do we then as universities both uh, uh, maintain our status as um, a, uh, a source of um, thought leadership, a source of fact, of evidence-based policy uh, and so on. That's at the bigger um, sort of international level. I think that's a real challenge for us. I think some of the other challenges that we also are observing is um, around research funding and research rankings. Mm -hmm. Research funding is um, not keeping up in countries like New Zealand and Australia, et cetera. And yet other countries, if you say take, you know, say China or Singapore or wherever, they are all investing heavily into their research. Um, and um, so the, what the notion of research rankings is and its proxy as a, um, as a sign of quality uh, will challenge Western universities who stop investing or don't invest significantly in their research endeavour and competitively um, our innovation and um, the impact of that on GDP will, will be felt by developed countries as these other countries rise in research rankings because of their very, very deliberate investment into research. I think that's a major global issue for us. It's certainly affecting New Zealand and Australia. Um, and then how universities manage the change in the nature of work, um, what that means for our education programs, what that means for our campuses, many, many most, all, have been designed on a, a workforce that came regularly onto campus. That's not the case anymore. That's been accelerated by COVID, but um, that, that's a challenge for us as we all have very, um, you know, uh, physical capital heavy portfolios, um, which are expensive to maintain and perhaps not fit for purpose anymore. There's some of the big things that universities are dealing with the world over, but you know, you will know many others. Well, one of the things that I find and have found it the paradox for a long time is the relationship in universities between teaching and research. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, Provost and Deputy mm -hmm. Vice-Chancellor academic, um, you know, education was my portfolio. But I work closely with the DVC research. The paradox is the next generation of researchers come from the current stock of really good students. But if you are limiting the possibilities for their learning and their possibilities for excellence and curiosity so that they can become the next generation of researchers, that's, that's the paradox. How, how do you manage that paradox? I think one of the wonderful things about New Zealand, and this is where I'm just going to bang on about my new country for a minute, um, is um, that it's legislated that the research teaching nexus um, remains. Um, and so... Um, whether you wanted to or not, it's actually very hard to move away from research-led teaching in this country. Um, and, well, you can't move away from it. So um, unlike Australia, where, you know, the um, qualifications framework and so on require sort of three broad areas of research, et cetera, to be conducted, and therefore other areas may not have research. Actually, that's not something that's okay here. So um, New Zealand has maintained that um, nexus uh, in a way that students are actively involved in um, 
projects, uh, industry projects, research projects, are taught by research academics um, and are surrounded by a sort of a research um, vibe, if you like, where um, that um, informal collision of ideas occurs quite routinely. So um, uh, I understand that it comes at a cost. And that's one of the things that has really put pressure on um, New Zealand universities financially. But like many other things in New Zealand, I've also observed that we tend to make the right decisions, not the easy decisions. And so um, I, I like it and I think it differentiates us quite significantly from other educational institutions at the tertiary level. And yes, it does come at a cost, but I think it's worth it to make sure that our graduates um, have um, at least have had their eyes opened up to the possibility of curiosity research, et cetera. So you've been, I'm, I'm turning it back on, on your personal experience again to in, in our closing section. You've been a vice chancellor in Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. What are the, what are the stark contrasts that you've realised? What, what did you have to learn quickly when you arrived in New Zealand and, and sort of throw away uh, from coming from Australia? I mean, I noticed that you haven't got a New Zealand accent yet. Ah, that's interesting because many people here think I have, um, or at least they can't tell my Australian accent. So maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, yes, uh, five years uh, in Australia as a VC and then six years here now. Um, and the difference is stark. It's very easy, especially when you're in Australia, to think that it's really the eighth state. Um, but uh, the sector, the, the, the culture in New Zealand is very different to the Australian culture, if there's a single Australian culture. Um, and you cannot operate like you might operate in an Australian way in New Zealand. Um, and um, that is, uh, I think, very important for people who move over here is not to assume that it's immediately translatable. From the university's perspective, the universities here are significant, funded significantly less per head of student than they are in Australia. And there's precious little money for things like capital um, investment here. So um, when I was in Australia, you know, as a vice chancellor, I would routinely grizzle like all my colleagues about shortage of funds. And then you come to New Zealand and it's significantly less. So it, what it does call you to do is to make sure that you have um, the exact the focus and priority right and that you're funding your strategy and not allowing for anything surplus. So it's a much leaner financial environment in New Zealand. There is much more emphasis and importance placed on Indigenous indigeneity through to Tiriti Watangi and uh, Māori colleagues and students and how we manage that within our university. And for Massey, we've um, set our strategy to be Tiriti led as an institution. That 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 means we we do need significant transformation in that space. And that's that depth and breadth of transformation in the Indigenous space is um, I haven't seen that in. Australia in my time and I don't see it at the moment comparatively. New Zealand's obviously a very um, you know, uh, it's got it's a, got an economy that's based on um, agriculture primary sector uh, and is not a particularly diverse economy. 
unlike Australia, which has quite a lot of diversity, which enables it to be quite robust economically. So we're very vulnerable to shifts in the, in the economy and that obviously flows through to all of us um, and makes it more difficult to attract individuals to work and study here and so on. Um, but um, for me, um, New Zealand has an incredible moral compass um, and um, I find um, my, it's been the best move um, in, uh, for me uh, personally and professionally. So um, I've enjoyed learning about the differences between the two. And while we are, you know, not, um, not as well off, I, I think some of the values that we have around family and balance and environment and so on um, makes it a wonderful place uh, to live and work. So if anyone's looking for a job, just be getting in touch with me. Um, uh, so, yeah, so the difference, the vice chancellor, the same job all over the world, right? But the broader um, environment that we find ourselves in culturally, historically, linguistically, uh, politically, quite different. And you need to understand the difference as you move countries. And what about relationships with government and relationships with communities? Because... Uh, relationships with government can always be somewhat testy. Yeah. And then relationships with communities can also be testy. So can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah. So we have a tertiary education commission, which we don't have in Australia, which is, um, you know, distributes funds on behalf of the government, um, monitors quality and so on here, uh, which is different to Australia. Um, so there's a bit of a middleman. But one thing that's very observable here is New Zealand's a small country. Everyone kind of knows everybody and it's quite informal. So, you know, I know pretty much all the politicians because and everyone kind of knows me. Um, and that can um, be hugely advantageous if you're trying to bring together groups, industry, government, universities to work collaboratively on something that's good for New Zealand. We can, I just pick up the phone and you can talk to industry, talk to politicians and stuff and get that all together pretty quickly. Um, and that that's certainly easier here. And I think that represents our size and also a level of informality. Um, uh, so um, building the relationships here, as you come in as a newcomer, you do need to prove you know, your worth. And so it, it takes a bit of time to do that. But people um, don't particularly like airs and graces, and that suits me because I'm not that sort of person. You know, they want to see, you know, the authentic you um, and to bring your whole self to conversations. So building relationships um, uh, here hasn't been an issue for me, but it is absolutely critical for institutions like Massey, where um, we work hand in glove with um, partners on a whole range of different things. And those relationships at the core of um, those partnerships and things really, you know, fundamentally matter. So really making sure you understand what they want, looking for win-wins, maintaining that relationship over um, a long period of time is, is seen to be a positive in New Zealand. I um, This is not a country where you can just sort of, you know, um, flash in and do something and then flash out again. It, it needs much more depth and authenticity in a relationship um, than anything else. And I really, really admire that um, aspect of New Zealand. 
And look, my last question is, what advice would you give to uh, aspirant vice-chancellors in preparing for the job and then surviving the job? Uh, firstly, um, in terms of preparing for the job, I would um, always say to people, project that you're in the job already um, rather than um, projecting that you could do the job if given an opportunity. Um, in the way you write, in the way you speak, in the way you hold yourself, um, be like the job that you're applying for so that people can see what you, whether that would be, um, whether that works for them or not, rather than saying, well, I think they could step up. Well, you don't ever want anyone saying you think you could step up. You want to have stepped up. The other thing is don't just apply for things that are um, things that are uh, any job, right? Identify what your values are and what drives you and what your golden thread is in your life. And then identify institutions that have those characteristics and then apply for those ones only. And that means you might not apply for one, whereas you might apply for another, because you know that, that once you've got the values working well for you, it's not a job, it's an absolute pleasure to work in those sorts of institutions. So make sure you've got values alignment. And once you're in the job, don't read social media. Um, uh, that is um, crippling, um, uh, crippling for leaders at the moment, um, and particularly, unfortunately, for um, women leaders, it's uh, it's crippling. So, the best thing I can suggest to people is that they have people um, who advise them at the higher level on what's happening um, in terms of social media. But if you go, if you go looking. It can, it can be soul destroying. So that's, that's you know, like I guess the bigger point there is to make sure you keep balance and perspective, make sure you look after all aspects of yourself, including mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness, relationship wellness, as well as professional um, achievements, because it's a, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And what a, what a great and inspirational way for us to end our conversation. Jan, thank you for giving me uh, 40 minutes of your time this morning. It, for me, it's been a joy. And I thank hope uh, we cross over face-to-face -face at some time in the future. Thanks. Thanks, Judith. Best of luck. Visit studiosity.com slash studentsfirst for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.